You are listening to a sermon from In-Town Presbyterian Church in Portland, Oregon. If you'd like to listen to other sermons or find out more about the ministries and work of In-Town, please visit InTownChurch.com. We're going to begin by looking at or talking about the, the greatest film ever made regarding science and faith. Any guesses on what it is? It's the Coen brothers, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, made in 2000. And this is a retelling of the Odyssey story, but it's set in Depression-era Mississippi. You have two or three primary characters. The first is Ulysses Everett McGill, and he's the man of science. He's the enlightenment man. He's the one in the story, in the quest, that won't trust anything unless he can touch it, unless he can see it, unless it can be verified by scientific method, by empiricism. And then there's Delmar and Pete, his two compadres, sort of halfwits, but they don't see coincidences. They see miracles. They see that there's something beyond the visible world, which can't be seen and touched. Now, these are three escaped cons, and they're on search for a treasure. Unfortunately, though, the treasure is buried in a valley that's about to be flooded to put in a hydroelectricity plant or or dam. And it's a treasure left over from an armored car heist that's gone wrong. And so Everett convinces Delmar and Pete to take this journey with them, to go find the treasure. And it turns into this big quest that sort of loosely mirrors the Homer's Odyssey. But the Coen brothers, incidentally, said they never read it. So they're just kind of picking different pieces of it. And along the way, they meet a blind prophet that gives them a prophecy about their quest. They meet the sirens, uh, which Pete and Delmar call the sirenes. And uh, they meet a cyclops, the person of John Goodman. And Later, they stumble upon a baptism in a river. And Pete and Delmar, after this life of crime, decide, we're going to be baptized. We're going to be absolved from our sin. And they rush down, and the preacher tells them to be baptized so that your sins can be forgiven. So Delmar, after his baptism, runs up to Everett, and he says, Well, that's it. I've been redeemed. The preacher's done washed away all my sins and transgressions. It's the straight and narrow from the here on out, and heaven everlasting's my reward. The preacher said, All my sins are washed away, including that piggly wiggly I knocked over down in Yazoo. Everett, ever the skeptic, says, I thought you said you were innocent of those charges. Well, I was lying. And the preacher said, that sin's been washed away too. The preacher said, it absolved us. And then Everett says, well, for him maybe, but not for the law. Even if, you d- even if that did put you square with the Lord, the state of Mississippi is a little bit more hard-nosed. Baptism. You two boys are dumber than a box of hammers. And he continues to interpret every strange circumstance on their journey, every incredible thing that happens, he has to interpret through enlightenment rationality, has to be an explanation for everything. Until he gets to the very end of the journey and the sheriff is caught up with him and they're about to be hanged and Everett gets down on his knees and begins to pray, Lord, have mercy, I just want to see my family again. And he prays for a miracle. And lo and behold, at that moment, a big wave washes over them. And just like the Exodus story, they're saved, but their captors are killed. Now, Everett's response to this is that, 
I knew they, I told you, they were putting in a hydroelectricity plant. But Delmar and Pete see it as a miracle that God has intervened into their story. But as they float along, Everett then sees a cow on a house that's floating in the river, just as the blind prophet had told them at the very beginning of the movie. And the movie ends and closes with this blind prophet making his way down the railroad tracks. And the Cohen brothers are saying, which do you believe? What's your story? How do you see the world? No matter how weird and incredible the journey became, Everett clings to the religion of the Enlightenment to explain everything, putting faith in science as having a perfectly understandable way, explanation for everything, whereas Pete and Delmar are quick to see something beyond, something untouchable. Are these the only two options that we have? And we've been comparing different ways of looking at the world and arriving at truth. And we've been talking about how the way that most of us think about science and faith as being very reductionistic, that science is often thought of to be the realm of objective, cold, hard truth, and that faith is thought of to be the realm of subjectivity and irrationalism, and that neither of those things are true, that, those, that is very, very misleading. And in recent philosophy, we've seen even secular philosophers that are identifying this and say, no, that dichotomy is false. It's, it's awfully reductionistic that both science and religion have elements of faith and that both begin with certain givens and certain presuppositions. The privileging of scientific rationalism, Everett's point of view, is now receding even in secular culture. Now, our passage speaks very well into this context. It's telling us about the beginning of all things, And it's not giving us, however, a scientific textbook, a detailed textbook, but it's giving us what? A story, a narrative to believe and to inhabit. In this story, there's plenty of room for science to explain some of the details of how creation took place. But the Bible, Christianity, claims to know the why. And maybe more importantly, the who stands behind behind creation. We're going to look at just a piece of this story that we just read, that of the creation of humanity, the Genesis story of humanity, the account of creating man and woman gives us a picture, it gives us a people, and it gives us a purpose. It gives us a picture of God, a people of God, and a purpose for the people of God. Let's look at them in order. First of all, a picture. Now, Adopt for me, if you will, Everett's point of view for just, just a moment. Purely material view of the, of the, of the um, cosmos, of the universe. If the universe, however, is random, if it, everything happens by chance, what does that say about you and I? It says that you're an accident. It says that your life is gratuitous. It says that the universe is completely indifferent to your experience and to your existence. Bertrand Russell, who was a very well-known atheist philosopher in the 20th century, put his finger on this very fact, and he said, without reservation, this is true. We are the product of causes that had no previsions of the ends they were achieving. The hopes, fears, loves, and beliefs of our minds are just the outcomes of the accidental collocations of atoms. 
that you and I and everything about us, our whole story is just the accidental collocation of Adam's. That's one who believes in a purely naturalistic, purely materialistic worldview. And he says without reservation, that's true. That's how we have to live. But for me, and I'm sure for you, that's isolating and depressing and dehumanizing because you really are lost in the, com- in the cosmos. What our passage says, quite in opposition to that, is that God said, let us make humanity in our image. That every human being depicts the glory, depicts the image of God himself. That for everyone in this room, for everyone who has ever lived, there is an irreducible glory, value, significance, meaning. That every person you meet on the street, every person that cuts you off in traffic, every person that you live in relationship with, every person that you have an argument with, depicts the image of God and is worthy of your respect because they are a picture of God himself. There is simply no scientific basis to say this. Science can tell us how our bodies work. Science can reveal the enormous complexity of our bodies at a molecular level, and these are tremendously valuable insights. But there's no empirical way to say this person has worth, this person has dignity, this person should be protected and championed, and loved. This is not an esoteric issue at all, but it's very practical. It's very practical. When I counsel people that are going through psychological difficulties, when they've had emotional trauma, some of the, there there are scientific insights that can be quite helpful, that clinical practitioners can help discern physiological imbalances, maybe even genetic proclivities to certain types of addiction and behavior. They can even prescribe medicine sometimes that can help ward off some of those symptoms. But without the creation story, without the story that God has made you in his image, and yet what every person that I counsel is dying to hear, no matter what their story is, no matter their failings, how they've been victimized or how they victimized other people, that they are valuable, that they are important, and that a gracious, personal God has created them and knows their name and cares deeply for them. There's no way from a purely clinical perspective to say that, but every person that I'm counseling, and you and I would probably say the same thing, we're dying to hear that. We're dying to hear that you are known, that a gracious God knows your name, he knows your story, and he cares about you. It's enormously practical, that is, the creation story. Another example I don't know if you are aware of, but the city that we live in has become a primary hub of sex trafficking in the whole country, particularly of children. Portland has been dubbed by Dan Rather as porn land because children as young as 12 are being trapped in the vicious cycle of sex slavery. Now, what a Christian can say in that, what a Christian can say to that, that a purely naturalistic worldview cannot, is that that is wrong. That that is wrong. That it's not simply unseemly or bad for business or bad for commerce, and that therefore we ought to put a stop to it. But that these girls are not a commodity. That they're not an object to be sold and traded. 
That's what the creation story allows us to say, is that that is wrong, because they hold the image of God, that they are created with dignity and worth, and therefore they are not a commodity. From psychological issues to exploitative business practices to how the marginalized are cared for in our society, in our city, and how we begin to think about the beginning and the end of life, the creation story is tremendously relevant and tremendously practical. Who really here wants to say that there are 80 years where you seem to matter, where your thoughts seem to make sense and seem to have value, but then the universe simply moves on? Who really wants to live in that way, and who among us can The Bible draws exactly the opposite verdict, that you were created with my forethought, God says, with my loving hand, that you are an image of me. You are a picture of me. Extraordinarily different verdict on the human experience. Human beings are a picture of God, but they're also a people of God. They're made to be a people. They're made to live as a people of God. St. Augustine in the third century said that Christianity is the only religion where community is intrinsic to the divine nature. Intrinsic to the divine nature. What's he saying? Well, he's referring to the classic Christian doctrine that undergirds every critical belief that God lives in community, that God lives in relationship with himself and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The idea that God is a trinity. And before the world was ever created, there was a loving relationship. There was, in fact, a community that existed before God created anything. If you notice in our passage, the creating agent was a plural pronoun. It said, let us make humanity in our image. And the church has historically held that that's referring to this classic essential foundational doctrine of the Trinity, that the work of creation is the work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together, that everything is lovingly made out of their community, that they're reproducing another model community to reflect them. Now, recent biblical scholarship has been a little bit squeamish about assigning that let us to the Trinity, because the other uses of let us in the Old Testament are more specifically referring to the heavenly court, that God is addressing the angelic court. But he says, let us make humanity in our image, and our, in our image would, would much more appropriately be a reference to God. But nonetheless, even if that can't be proven to a great degree. We saw in John 1 and throughout other pages of Scripture that Jesus, that the Holy Spirit, are intimately involved with the work of creation. What this means is that the instincts that you and I have to live in community, the love that we share with one another, our desire to protect one another, to defend one another, to live in relationship is not simply a means of survival but it's derivative of God's own community. And it means that the love that you receive from others, you give to others, your desire for purpose, your impulse to defend, and and our worship of God as a people is not simply a set of chemical reactions in the brain. It's not simply a genetic mutation to help the species survive. 
that they are in fact eternal virtues that find their source in God himself. And as we act upon these, whether we're Christians or not, we are giving expression to the image of God that resides in each of us. As we live as a people of God, we are reflecting that eternal, holy trinity. But what of the recent advances in scientific thought that seem to make belief, seem to make faith, seem to make believing the Bible to be spoken of God? What of these recent advances that give a purely naturalistic explanation for everything? Can we still be a people of God who surround this table, who come together around this story of creation? Isn't the Big Bang an argument against faith? What about evolution? What about some of these things that have taken hold and seem to have gathered scientific consensus? Do they cause us to disbelieve? Should we return, should we jettison these pre-modern superstitious beliefs? Well, a couple of, couple of answers to that, and there are many, but we only have about 30 minutes, so let me give you two. First of all, it takes a good bit of hubris to draw the conclusion that the findings within your narrow discipline overrule every other discipline. That studies that emerge in your discipline precludes other disciplines from contributing to the world of knowledge. That your one area of expertise creates a unified theory of everything. What you're doing in that regard is you're speaking as an authority on theology. You're speaking as an authority on the Christian faith. You're stepping inside the Christian faith in order to disprove it. How do you know that the findings of cosmology can't be reconciled in any way with the story of creation? How do you know that the Big Bang can't be reconciled with biblical cosmology? How do you know that an unbroken evolutionary chain can't fit within the story of creation? How do you know? Are you an expert in biblical interpretation. Elaine Howard Eklund has written a study entitled Science Versus Religion, What Scientists Really Think. And in it, she argues that though the percentage of elite scientists with a religious affiliation is less than the general population, she seeks to explain why that is. And one of the things that she discovered in multiple surveys in this very scientific study is that scientists, especially elite scientists that are working in cosmology, cosmogony, molecular biology, and whatnot, many of them have almost an absolute religious illiteracy, that they know very little about what people actually believe inside of religious traditions, and that, generally speaking, they take the most fundamentalist the most uh, literalistic interpretation of the text and, and see that as, exp- as representing the whole. Do you understand? So the scientist is saying, of course, my findings can't, or of course my findings disprove that because they see all people of religion, all people of faith from the lens of this one narrow constituency of fundamentalism. That's their understanding of people of faith. That's their understanding of religious texts. Very little at all. She also goes on to say that most scientific skeptics were skeptics before they became professional scientists. It wasn't that their work prompted them to become atheistic in their outlook, but that they were before. Now, secondly, 
What's another answer to this idea that recent findings in science have disproved the Bible, have, have made it impossible to believe the biblical story? Even if we were able to trace the expanding universe back to the very beginning and in great detail say, this is how it happened, we still haven't answered what's behind it. What happened before? How did there become matter in existence to begin with? Even if you can draw an unbroken chain of natural selection backwards from humanity back to the very first single-cell organism, you've only gotten back a few hundred million years on one planet in a universe that's 14 billion years old and has billions of stars and planets. It's great hubris to say, because I see this, that's this very narrow band of reality that I can say indisputably that it disproves that God exists. You see, we're only looking backwards to a certain degree, to a certain timeline. And what's behind that? What created anything to begin with? But wait, you might say, aren't you doing that? Aren't you telling a story that is a totalizing story that seeks to make all other stories submit to it? And I would say a qualified yes, but that it never, the Christian story and Christian theology never precludes the search for truth in other disciplines. It never says you can't speak with authority. The Christian faith has always argued for two books, not one book of Revelation. Two books, the special revelation, that is the Bible that God has spoken into our world. But then there's general revelation that all of creation speaks about God. And so that findings, findings of truth and other disciplines are things that we should celebrate. That as Christians who believe the Bible, we should have a high view of science and a high view of research, seeking to uncover the incredible complexity, the beauty that exists in creation. Now, admittedly, Christians, as well as scientists, have pitted the work of science versus faith, but it doesn't have to be like that. Generally, the conflict has happened when either discipline has claimed that they don't need the other one, when one has tried to marginalize the other. For instance, the National Science Teachers Association, their primary statement of purpose goes like this. Science is a method of explaining the natural world. It assumes that the universe operates according to regularities that can be discovered and understood through scientific investigations. Huge presupposition, huge statement of faith. Then, the methodology of science emphasizes the logical testing of alternate explanations to natural phenomenon against empirical data. Because science is limited to explaining the natural world by means of natural processes, it cannot use supernatural causation in its explanations. Similarly, science is precluded from making statements about supernatural forces because these are outside its providence. Science has increased our knowledge, get this, because of its insistence on the search for natural causes. Do you see how much philosophy is embedded in that statement? Do you see how much theology is embedded in that statement? They have to make a philosophical claim that natural processes are adequate to explaining everything. That's a theological statement. 
It says that science may not make statements about supernatural forces, but that's exactly what this statement does. It makes them irrelevant. This is a precondition that science is a discipline that's walled off from other disciplines, that's immune from, other, from findings in other disciplines, that is in fact ascendant over all other thought. This is not science, but scientism. And this is what's in direct conflict with the Bible because it's an alternate religion. Science is not in conflict with the Bible. Scientism is in conflict. What scientists who are Christians have argued is that in general terms, and certainly there's overlap, is that science is answering the how while theology, while Christianity is answering the why and the who and for what purpose, how and why. And if this is true, then discoveries and knowledge in one area don't have to be in conflict with the other. Whatever consensus emerges regarding evolution, M-theory, etc., we could say that these are theories telling us the how, but still haven't answered and are not speaking to the why. And here's where Christianity gives the rest of the story, that the universe, that humanity is created not simply to be a picture of God, not simply to live as a people of God, but also created with a, with a purpose, a purpose. You may have um, heard the news reports a few months ago. Stephen Hawking released one of his latest uh, book on kind of popularizing M-theory, string theory. It's called The Grand Design. And this is where he posits that the universe came into being from nothing and that there's now established uh, science to show that this is possible and Probable. So basically, the headlines were Stephen Hawking's claims that universe needs no God, so forth. Puts an end to faith, what's all together. Roger Penrose is one of his colleagues at Cambridge, and actually a friend of his, has done many, they did a lot of work back in the 70s together. And he, Roger Penrose, is not a believer, he's not a Christian, he's an atheist. But he says that claiming, that, that calling Hawking's theory a theory is quite generous. He says, what is referred to as M-theory isn't even a theory. It's a collection of ideas, hopes, and aspirations. I think the book is a bit misleading in that respect. It gives you the impression that here's this new theory which is going to explain everything. It's nothing of the sort. It's not an uncommon thing in popular descriptions of science to latch on to some idea particularly things to do with string theory, which have absolutely no support from observation. They're just nice ideas that people have tried to explore. Do you see what he's saying is that there is a lot of Hawking science that makes great sense, but a lot of it is based upon things that aren't observable. Have we seen an entrance of faith into science at that intersection? Yes. And he goes on to argue, he says that the chances of the type of equilibrium that's required to exist at the very beginning of the universe so that the universe doesn't expand too quickly and doesn't contract in on itself. He says that the chances of that happening without some type of guidance, and keep in mind, he is not a believer. He says it's 10 with more zeros than there are particles in the universe. We now, it's one in one part in 10 to the 123rd power. That's what he says the chances are that this current universe could have come into existence on its own, that all of those 
met all of those um, different um, variables to be in the place that they are. Ten with more zeros, and there are particles in the universe. And this is why secular scientists like Paul Davies are saying, it may seem bizarre, but in my, pa- in my opinion, science offers a surer path to God than religion. There is such a purposeful, intentional look to the creation. And we live with this desire for purpose, for intentionality, to find goodness in the world, to live in community. All of these things in our own experience would suggest what Davies is suggesting, that there's something behind this universe. Our passage said that God looked at what he had formed and he saw that it was good. And this means not just good as from an aesthetics perspective, but beneficial and desirous. That is, that it is good for the purpose that God has for it. It's good to those that he has created to live in relationship together and with him and to carry out the tasks that he's given them. That it's good for that, that the creation can uphold that. And humanity, both male and female equally, are to rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. That's part one of purpose. Part two is that they are to be fruitful and increase in number, to fill the earth and subdue it. And that the earth, that the creation, that the universe is good for that purpose. They are to rule on behalf of God and to take care of creation on his behalf. And they are to populate the earth with others who will love God and live in relationship with him. That's the purpose. That's the why that I've been alluding to, that God has made you and I to live, to be a picture of him, to live as a people surrounded around his gospel message and to live with the purpose of bringing that to others, of populating the earth with people that believe. The universe was made to be a good place for purposeful living for humanity to be a picture, a people of God, and to have his purpose. And the scriptures at the end of this whole story of creation tell a final story, and that is that the crowning achievement of creation is the redemption that makes this possible. That when God created and saw it was good, and he gave his creatures the ability to choose for themselves who they would serve, instead of serving God, they chose to serve themselves to make a name for themselves. But instead of meeting out exact and perfect and final justice, God says, no, you have brought a curse on the ground. It is still a good creation, but it is blighted and marred. You have brought a curse on all creation, but I will redeem you. I will provide one who will be a perfect sacrifice for you that will not simply pull you out of, redeem, out of creation, but will redeem the whole earth. That Christ's work of redemption is described by the biblical writers as a work of re-creation. That he was there at the beginning, that it was by his word that all of creation had its start, and now he is recreating the whole world. 
2 Corinthians 5 talks about everyone who has taken hold of that redemption, who has taken hold of that offer, is now a new what? A new creation. They have been made over, that they are now better able to more fully depict the picture of God, to live in community as a people of God, and to follow the purposes of God, that that's what it means to be a new creature. You have been made new, and one day you will be fully restored. And the passage that we read, Romans 8, speaks to this because what it does is it ties that personal redemption to the redemption of all creation, of everything that is, of every molecule. And it says that the creation is waiting for the final redemption to appear. It is groaning because it has been subject to futility. But Jesus is at work bringing all things back to goodness and better than they were. He is redeeming all things. Friends, would you now take hold of that redemption? Take hold of that story. There is an amazing purpose to live. This work of recreation that Jesus has done in your life, if you are a Christian, your purpose is then to live that out. Live that out in your daily life. Live that out in introducing others to this story of recreation and to be a part of it, to grow and be in more conformity with Jesus and his work of recreation to understand what that means and say, God, help me live that way. As we come to, t- come to the table, we celebrate that work, that initial work of creation, that work of recreation, and the final work of redemption that Jesus will bring. That's what we celebrate as we come to the table. So take hold of Jesus and his redemption as we pray. Father, we thank you for this time you've given us. We pray that This would clarify many of the questions that we have, that, Father, we would not be fearful of knowledge, of discovery in other areas, but, Father, that we would cling to the hope that is found in Jesus, cling to the hope that is described in the Bible, cling to the story of creation and recreation and final redemption. Let us be people who concern ourselves with that work. And Father, if if there are those of us here who are still questioning, still working out the um, objections that they have, I pray that you would be patient with them, that you would give them your insight. Let them have eyes that see your beauty and your grace. And we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.